Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in an authentic conversation, well, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the real dialogue oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. Nothing is more powerful than words. Alan Watts reminds us, We seldom realize that our most private thoughts and emotions are not actually our own, for we think in terms of languages and images which we did not invent, but which were given to us by our society. We think, live, work, and play in mental scaffolding created by others. Today, we go deep with Dr. Valerie Friedland. She's a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada, Reno. She writes a popular language blog on psychology today called Language in the Wild. Her new book is the number one bestseller. It's called, like literally, Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. So if you love words, thinking, and thinking about words, you're going to love Valerie. And pay special attention to her story about the origin of the word dude. It's legendary. Your brain will thank you for listening to this one. Now, the future belongs to the creative capitalist. People who go beyond knowledge work to create new categories of knowledge. New creative capital. To thrive today, legendary companies are using thought leadership creative capital to design and dominate their categories. And that's why you need a mighty network. On a mighty network, you can bring together your community, memberships, online courses, webinars, and events in one place under your brand on a platform you control. Plus, when you're ready, you can run your mighty network on your own branded mobile apps. So if you want to dominate your category, mobilize your community, and drive new growth fast, go to MightyNetworks.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Valerie, I sure am glad we get this time together. Me too. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. And I, I got to tell you, I'm a bit of a uh, what you might call use of language or what around here we call languaging nerd. I've always paid close attention to why people say the things they say using the words they use. And in the discipline that we teach called category design, one of the core elements of category design we teach people is listen to the words. So when I heard about your book, I was immediately fascinated. And so, uh, like literally, dude, why is uh, bad English good? <laughs> or or uh, do women, men can call women dude, right? We do that, right? Yeah, You're yeah. Well, it's evolved. You really, for a long time in the history of the word dude, which is a fascinating history, really it was only for men and not always a favorable term. Bill and Ted would have been decidedly unpopular about a century ago, but now dudes can be anyone. Yes. I always love it when, uh, you know, my wife and her girlfriends call each other dude. And, um, and I do hear younger guys calling younger gals dude. I, I'm not normally a person who calls um, female people dude, but <laughs> but I can be talked into it. And so <laughs> what motivated you to want to write this book about what some people say is the complete and total destruction of the English language in a positive context? Well, you know, I think that's pretty much what drove me to write the book. I'm a linguist, so I study language for a living. I'm a linguist in the theoretical sense. So I think a lot of times when I say I'm a linguist, people think I speak a million languages, which I really don't. I basically can order a beer in most languages, and that's where it stops. Maybe I can find the restroom as well, but that's about it. Those really are the two uh, most important those, things, aren't those they? Those are crucial. <laughs> yes, totally crucial. But what I do is I study the underlying structure of language, the cognitive apparatus and articulatory apparatus that we have that allow human language in all languages. So it's sort of what unites us all as speakers. And we all have the same brain and the same mouth and they work in certain ways. And as a linguist, we're interested in understanding what those ways are and how that's impacted by social events and social categories and um, social and cultural change over time, which is what leads to language change over time. And languages are unbelievably um, creative and innovative. They have evolved for millennia. And in fact, 
we are in a world where Greek and Latin and French and English and Sanskrit all came from the same source language. And that was done through language change. So it's funny that people get so upset over language change when they haven't taken the, I think it's more of an anthropological evolutionary viewpoint of what it is language was intended for and why it changes over time. And as a linguist, we study this all the time. We do experimental research. We do historical research. We look at the science and the history of language. And I realized when people kept coming up to me and asking me questions about these things they heard in speech around them that they hated, no one ever comes up to me and said, oh, I love like, can you real? Can you tell me about like, because I love it so much. No one says that. So I thought, well, what if I gave people the tools to understand why language is doing what it's doing? They may not like it, but at least they'll understand it. And that's really what I'm fighting for here. And so um, uh, the emergence of these new phrases that we hear that some people dislike, like, like, um, <laughs> are these the emergence? Is this uh, how language develops, how language changes, how dialects happen, all of the above, more of the above? Uh, please, for those of us who didn't go to any school, educate me. <laughs> sure, it's all of the above. So when we look at how our brains work and how our mouths work, there are certain ways that when we look at the historical record of language change, they seem to prompt languages to change in certain ways in certain directions. And there are facts about society that are also incredibly impactful on the shape and the form of language. And so when we look at at how that evolves over time, which is usually toward, and I'm not going to use the word simplicity because that's a word that's so loaded with these ideas that are bad, but it changes towards language that can function in, with a minimum of ex effort for the maximum communicative message. And that's really what the goal of language is. But it's not just to communicate information, straight, literal, semantic information. It's also to communicate social facts. So things about our relationship, things about the situation, things about the context, uh, ideas about where I'm headed. Uh, also do things like signal to you what you should expect that I'm about to say next and how that relates to what you just said. There's a lot of social signaling work that goes with language. And this is really important because even think back in the early days of language, when perhaps it was a much more rudimentary system than what we have now, you would signal things about whether you were from the same clan or not. And that would be done through things like the way you dressed and sort of cultural artifacts, but also through linguistic forms. So language is sort of the ultimate culturally cultural signaling system. And if culture changes, shouldn't we expect that system to change as well? And it's going to change in ways that our brains and mouths were designed to do. So for example, there are a lot of sounds that are articulatorily more difficult to make. They don't make a lot of sense when you take articulatory ease into account and the transition between sounds as you're making them in fast speech. So what we find is it's natural in language to evolve more efficient sound systems. One of the things, for example, we see occurring over and over again in languages is the simplification of TH sounds, which are single sounds, not multiple sounds. So it's not a T, H, it's a TH, which is just replicated in writing with a TH, but it's a single sound. That often moves towards sounds like F or V or T or D, because that is more efficient from an articulatory standpoint, particularly in fast speech when you're saying other sounds with it. Um, and But we hate people that say those things, right? We criticize them as lazy, sloppy speakers, or even worse, we kind of brand them with uh, socially disfavored titles or ethnic marking and say that it's lazy, sloppy, uneducated. But actually, it's the way that language has evolved, and it's for really good articulatory reasons why this happens. And if we look at how languages evolve over time, they almost always evolved in the directions of what's more natural cognitively and what's more natural articulatorily. We fight against it, but that is really what happens and has happened throughout the course of the history of language for 40, 50,000 years. Like that was awesome, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Articulatory, fantastic word. So in no particular order, you, you know, you've got my uh, brain firing in all sorts of ways. So um, 
the ways uh, words are pronounced seems to have changed over time. So, and maybe it's, so I grew up in Canada on the East coast of Canada. And when I was younger, I thought the world was, the word was details. And today the word I hear is details. I used to be the head of marketing for a publicly traded software company. And the way I would pronounce the name of that company, I would pronounce it Mercury. And the way most Americans who worked at the company pronounced it was Mercury. And then the other one that I just love is when I was a kid, insurance was insurance. And today, more often than not, or at least often enough, I hear insurance. So before we get to new words and new uses of words, which I really am stoked to get to, tell me how details becomes details and insurance becomes insurance or or maybe i didn't get it the whole time <laughs> no we do find a lot of that and that's actually not really a change in pronunciation as much of a change in stress pattern and when we we stri- switch the stress on the syllable so every english word every word has a stress pattern so it might be if it's a monosyllable it's going to be obviously on that one word but if it's a disyllabic word like details it's going to be either on the first or second syllable so what you're describing is simply a difference in norms about which syllable to stress when we unstress a syllable we tend to reduce the vowel so it becomes more central in the mouth because when you de-stress a syllable you're not spending as much articulatory effort on it. So what what we do is we highlight one syllable in every word. That's a fact. All the other syllables then get de-stressed and move towards a central vowel because that's the middle tongue position where the tongue can more quickly move to other targets. So for example, you have a word like photo, but you put it in a word like photograph. The stress is removed from the O and it becomes a photograph. It's still the same word, but you've switched the stress. So what you're describing is differences in stress patterns. A lot of times that can either happen over time because of influences from other languages or a different dialect, or a lot of times you'll have different dialects that stress different words. So you find this, for example, in Southern speech. I grew up in the in the South and we would say police, police. And that's because we stressed the first syllable. Um, and, you know, you also see this in differences between American and British English. And then probably what you're describing might be from dialect contact between a dialect that typically stressed the second syllable and now stresses it the first syllable. So those are really not sound changes. Those are stress changes. And what's interesting is that is something that has happened throughout the history of English. One of the reasons we lost most of the inflectional endings off of Old English So remember those words like stone and tail that have ease on the end that don't seem to do any work for us? Well, they used to do work for us. Those are actually remnants of old inflectional endings that existed in English. The E is actually a very uh, sort of part of it's like midway through that process of de-stressing that last syllable because it used to have more complex endings. So nouns used to have an A, a U, or an E ending in Old English. By Middle English, all we found were E endings. So it'd be tala. Stona, because already stress had started to weaken and all those three different endings when they were said in quick speech with a de-stressed syllables fell in towards one vowel, which hmm. is vowel reduction. And then eventually we lost that even. And now we just say tail and stone. So, so what was stone the, originally? Is, do we think, Valerie, or do we know? Stoness. It used to be stoness in stoness. old English. In old yes. English, you of, and of I would have said stoness. Stoness. Well, it would depend on what case we had. So Old English was kind of complex, but the accused, the um, nominative case would have been stoness. But then it went to stona, and now stone, it's just stone. Uh. Yeah. So mm. stress has shifted throughout time. Uh, often that one happened because of contact with Old Norse and um, Anglo-Norman French that started to affect the stress pattern of Old English. And we find that same process when we have dialects or languages come in contact today. I love it. Man, I could talk to you about this for 12 hours. <laughs> now, now another one of late that has sort of shifted um, is the word partner. So when I was a younger person, if somebody said partner, more often than not, they were referring to a, a business type partner uh, relationship. They were not often referring to a romantic or committed kind of um, relationship. And then if my memory's right, and you'll have to forgive me, I'm not that smart and I drink a lot. But over time, as um, as gay people and LGBTQ people became sort of uh, more out of the closet and more socially accepted and so forth, 
uh, a lot of gay people would introduce their primary relationship person pre-gay marriage. They would say, this is my partner because they couldn't say my wife or my husband. Well, now I find uh, if you talk to a 28-year-old married person or a 28-year-old not married person, for that matter, when introducing you to their significant other, whether that's a gay partner or a heterosexual partner or whatever kind of partner, they will often say, oh, this is my partner, Valerie. And today we don't know. And so, for example, in business, when I introduce my partner, Eddie, I find myself saying, well, if I just say my partner, Eddie, they might think he's my husband. And so I now say my business partner or my writing partner, Eddie. So tell me about partner. Okay, that's a beautiful example of the way that language shifts to keep up with cultural and social changes. And this is what we find throughout history is as we've changed what we need to describe and ways to describe it, language has evolved. And most often it takes something already in the language because neologism is actually quite rare. And neologism means the creation of new words. That's a very, very infrequent uh, process well, in any language. What? So, you, so tell me that word again. Neologism. That's a fancy word. It just means new, the creation of new words. Yeah, neologism. And so is somebody when we look who at, hold on, I'm sorry, I know you, I, sorry, sure, I, I'm sure. fascinated by this one. So, is somebody who creates new words is a, a neologist? Neologist. Okay, so I am a professional neologist. You could be. No, no, I am. Oh, well, there you go. That's a nice title for you then. Well, no, because one of the things we do in category design when we're trying to create a new market category. One of the things we say is you can't describe new things with old languaging. So, for example, a simple example would be Starbucks wants to charge uh, three bucks for a coffee. Well, if you call it a coffee, you can't charge three bucks because when they launch at the time, a coffee is a quarter. So they create new language. Now it's a uh, latte. Yes, now it's a five dollar coffee. I think you haven't kept up with inflation. <laughs> exactly. And so the, inter- the creation of a new language around coffee allows them to introduce a new category of coffee and coffee experience and a new price. And I don't know if you notice these kinds of things. You probably do. I, well, I notice when I go into a non-Starbucks and somebody goes up to the barista and says, I'd like a grande latte, please. There's a, always a bit of a smirk on their face because they're using the enemy's languaging in my place of business. So, right. so with that said, can I That's give you an, not an example of neologism? Oh, it's Let not. Me just what is clarify. it? Okay. No, because neologism is when you create a completely new word that's not borrowed from another language, which both latte and grande are. So that's actually a repurposing of of, of a borrowing. That's a borrowing. So and not a neologism. Word. That's a loan word. So neologism would be something like Xerox. Uh, or Kleenex, those were actually words that were, or Kodak, those were words that were created that hadn't been used before. Now, sometimes you can use word parts that already exist and put them together, but it would have to be something you created completely anew. Um, and that would be sort of like with uh, pronouns. For example, zir uh, is a pronoun that has been, is a neologism. There have been about 200 neologisms for third person plural singular pronouns and they haven't been very effective because neologism is generally not very effective. So if, for example, uh, the popularity of the music festival in Southern California, Lollapalooza has created a whole bunch of words. You know, I go to, we'll go to business conference about AI, let's say, and they'll say, Oh, well, this is AI Palooza. So what's that? Well, that's actually a morphological ending that has taken on productivity. So that's a little different. That is basically a morphological process called derivational morphology, if you want to get really fancy, where we take- I do want to get fancy. (laughs) We take endings or suffixes or prefixes. Palooza has become a suffix that you can attach to roots to bring that same sense. And gate is another great, great example. You know, there was Watergate, which was actually the name of a hotel. But then gate got separated from that and became descriptive of any kind of scandal. So, it, you know, you had Iran gate and various, you know, you could have pantyhose gate. I mean, anything that you wanted to make a scandal, you just attach gate. So Palooza has become the same sort of productive suffix productive to create suffix. new words. Suffix. So it is creating new words, but 
there's a difference between creating completely new words, which is a neologic tendency, and creating words using morphological processes that create a new word using old word parts, if that makes sense. Got it. Okay. Can I give you another example? Sure, sure. So um, as a student of language, uh, I often notice what seem to be stupid, uh, stupid expressions or certainly inaccurate, if to put it more nicely. So, for example, one of the things I noticed as a fairly young man was virtually any time somebody says, well, to make a long story short, they're in the middle of a long story. So I started to say what was actually going on. So in, in this discussion with you, I will say, well, to make a long story longer, and it almost always gets a laugh. It, it, it tweaks the ear of the listener, the person I'm in conversation with, because it's an unusual thing, but it's more accurate in my opinion. And so when you do something like that, take a known saying, twist it somehow, what's that called? Well, that is linguistic extravagance is sort of the expression used to describe when you do something novel to attract notice. And, you know, branding, that's a key way that brands get noticed. And uh, one great example is the Apple Think Different um, slogan, which was noticeable, not because they were words no one knew, but because they were words used in a traditionally non-grammatical way without the L-Y. And that attracted notice because it was an attempt to be extravagant with language, meaning to draw notice by using something that was unexpected. And whenever we experience something unexpected, it makes our cognitive focus go on that thing. And that is true of our world. So, you know, if you walk into the room and you'd just been in there and something new appears in that room, you're like, wow, I didn't know there was a dog on the bed because it wasn't there two minutes ago. It no You notice it because it's different. And language works just the same way. Fascinating. Now, what about, let me give you another example. So there's two in particular I've been, I've been really wanting to bounce off you. Um, and these are expressions that got developed in my friend group that I now hear in the world. So I don't know if other people were using them this way and I didn't hear them that way, or I don't know that origin. I have no idea, but I now hear these two phrases that at least in my life experience were invented amongst my, me and my friend group. And I'm going to use them for you and see if you, they, uh, they, they uh, ring any bells. You know, last night, um, we had some incredible, uh, incredible super ding-dong wine, Valerie. Super ding-dong? <laughs> yeah, ding-dong or super ding-dong. Well, uh, I've definitely heard ding-dong before, but super ding-dong is a, a new one. And that was a, that's a great example of hyperbolic intensification. There's and another uh, here's another one. So ding-dong in the way we use it, super ding-dong, uh, speaks about anything that's high-end, anything that's hoity-toity, anything that's expensive. Oh, He's a super ding-dong executive at that company. Or in the domain of wine, we might also say, because here's how this one developed for wine for me. I don't remember the names of any of these wines. I go to these beautiful, incredible dinners, and I don't remember any of them, right? So people say to me, oh, you know, what wine did you have last night? And I'll say, oh, we had an incredible, incredible bo bottle of uh, Chateau Neuf ding-dong. I love it. Okay, so here's that, the other. What do you say to the bad wine? It was a bad ding dong. It, it had no or ding or yeah, dong. Ding, no, it has no ding or dong. I love it, it didn't make my ding <laughs> dong at all, or my dong ding, or any of it. <laughs> now here's another one. So Valerie, the other day, uh, we we got to the airport on our vacation. We got to the airport, and man, there was a ton of hee haw at the airport. Hee-haw. Now, that one is a very novel use. I have not heard hee-haw hee since I was a kid and went to Nashville. Yeah. And so that's a phrase we use all the time. My buddy Ben keeps threatening to build a little uh, social app for your phone when you're experiencing uh, hee-haw on a scale of one to 10. And you can hit whatever number you're experiencing and post it to your social feed so your friends know what level of hee-haw you're currently experiencing. And he describes this app that he has heretofore not made, the hehometer. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, a perfect example of stress shift, hehometer rather than the hehometer. Ooh, very good. See? Man, it's fun yeah. talking to a linguist. Because you, you put a suffix on it, so it stressed this shift pattern. And so if I'm, let's say I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a category designer, I'm a marketer, I'm a creator, I'm an artist. You know, one of the things I think many of us love about lyrics I lo or music is lyrics. I love listening to lyrics and I've been 
going deep on uh, uh, um, Chris Stapleton for the last six or eight months. And I just, his lyrics, his turn of phrase. And so if I was somebody who wanted to be thoughtful, creative, and yet still communicate to people, but use language in a differentiating, uh, unique and creative way, what advice might you give me? You know, I think it would depend a lot on audience because different audiences react very differently um, to things in favorable and disfavorable ways. And if you're talking about a young audience, I think if you adopt some of the features in their speech and also come up with some fun creativity like you did with your friends where we re which and what you exemplify with those words that you came up with your friends, both of those are words that existed. So ding dong, certainly existed and hee haw. Um, I heard it on the grand old Opry when I was a kid, right? Those were words that were in the environment they were in the world. But what you did is you repurposed them in a novel way. And whenever we do things like that, it is it does attract notice. And particularly if you take a word that you use in a way that's fun, right? Noticeable and fun. It suggests that you are taking a lighthearted approach to whatever you're doing in a way that you want to be noticed, but you also want people to have fun with it. And I think that's really an engaging way to interact with people. Of course, you know, it doesn't always work out for you to, if you misread your audience. I think, um, you know, we find examples of that in advertising quite a bit where the, they misdirect what they think is fun to the audience. So you have to be careful. But one of the things you can do is add really fun suffixes on things like the Palooza. And I think a few years ago, and I can't remember exactly the wording, but there was some, um, uh, it was like thunderstorm Armageddon. It was a get in. You know, they added a get in to yeah. all these storms that were these nor'easters that were just coming through. So it, what it did is it kind of made people pay attention. It's not just another nor'easter. It was like Stormageddon. Right. Uh, or I can't remember the first word that they used for it. It uh, might have been, um, uh, well, I certainly know when after the, the sort of B movie Sharknado came out, you heard NATO tacked on everything we were talking about in the tech industry, how there was a uh, so much innovation right now. We're having a category NATO of new innovation. And so that's sort of a move. Yes. Right. And you take something like that and you make it something we already know. So we've heard it in Sharknado. We heard it in Armageddon. We've heard it in Gate, Watergate. And those are things that then are easily remembered because they have such an iconic place in our social history that you are playing on those associations with that word, even though it's just the suffix. And then you're applying the fun or the you know background that comes with that suffix from its previous history to the new thing that you're doing. And if you use something that is memorable because people already have experience with it, then they are more likely to remember the thing you're doing now. And so if you take something novel, like whatever your product is, and then you put NATO on the end or gate or something like that, or Palooza that is memorable with a history that invokes some certain kinds of associations, then you're using that, that those prior associations, it's prior history to help promote knowledge of your word. And then it makes it more memorable because it's both fun, right? It has sort of a, a catchy rhyming scheme to it, but also you're drawing on that history that makes that, that ending memorable and making whatever you're creating with it also more memorable, which is why I think that NATO type things and Paloozas tend to be memorable in our, our psyche. Thank you for that. Now, what about phrases? Is the same thing true? So if you think about, for example, prior to uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, the term tipping point, at least to the best of my knowledge, was not a term I heard. Um, and of course, he created that book, uh, the book about how small ideas become big things. And now, you know, you'll see an address at the United Nations where some politician will say, well, the such and such situation has hit a tipping point. And, da, 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 and it's just a phrase that's in the vernacular. And I don't even know if many of the people who use that phrase know that it was, if not originated by him, certainly popularized by his book. And so is the same thing true for phrases or are they different or how should we think about that? No, phrases are the same. And I think tipping point, I would be surprised if he invented it. But like Shakespeare, he popularized it, which is how a lot of expressions like the green eyed monster uh, came about. Shakespeare popularized expressions that were in culture at the moment, and he was the first to write them down. And I think whenever you have something that's immensely successful, like Malcolm Gladwell's book, plus a phrase that, that was pivotal to the book, 
then it really does highlight the use of that phrase to a larger audience that might have heard it in some cases, but it becomes sort of more emblematic of whatever experience they're trying to encode. And then they can use it in other contexts and it has a little more power because remember words have histories and sometimes we don't know those histories and so they don't matter to us. And we just use the word in the way that we have learned it traditionally. But a lot of times when there's a large social or cultural history with the word, it really impacts how other people notice it and how we tend to use it. And phrases are just the same as words in that way. Awesome. So let me uh, bounce this off you. In category design, another thing that we teach is the power of framing, naming, and claiming things, particularly problems and as well solutions. And let me give you a couple of examples. So if you remember the TiVo, TiVo was the company that created the category of the DVR. And what a lot of people forget is for a new uh, category of solution to appear, there must be a new category of problem. And so TiVo had to invent the problem. And the problem they invented was appointment viewing. That was a phrase we never had. It's somewhat self-explanatory, right? You have to wait till eight o'clock on Wednesday night to watch your favorite show. And they created sort of, you know, faux upset about that, you know, to quote the big Lebowski, this aggression will not stand, man. Why can't I watch my favorite show whenever I want? Just say no to appointment viewing and all that sort of stuff. And then the solution that they framed, named and claimed to the problem appointment viewing was the thing at the time they called time shifting. And so that's how they set up a new way of thinking about crafting a uh, video consumption experience. And so when you hear things like that, what, what does it fire off in your linguistic uh, genius brain? <laughs> well, we do framing. I mean, we don't really do it in that regard. So, you know, not for marketing or sales of, or that perspective, but we talk a lot about framing in linguistics um, because the way you frame something in even simple contexts like the words that come before immediately before a noun quite often, or what type of determiner or in um, sort of more grammar book style, they would call those articles in linguistics, we call them determiners, but the type of article that comes before something can really impact the way that it's processed by listeners. So framing is really critical. And, and this is one of the arguments about chat GPT and all of those things that work with huge amounts of training data is the framing in the training data causes in sort of this inherent bias in the responses of chat GPT because it does, it has more exposure to one kind of framing. And therefore that's more common the way it will respond because it does a statistical analysis of what's most common, what's, what's predictively most common in this context. And when you have a bias in framing data, uh, which exists in all the data that we have because humans are biased, then you create a biased machine as well. So a good example is we find that when people use articles like the in front of nationality, so the Germans, if you say the Germans did this, it automatically sets you up in opposition to the Germans. That means these are not my people. I'm calling out other people. It others, the, the use of the others versus if I don't have an article and I just say Germans are friendly people. That means I could be German. I might be talking about an in-group, but if I say the Germans are friendly people, by that really simple change in framing, I have othered myself as from the observer listening to me or reading the article that I am not taking this from a perspective of an in-group member. And then whatever follows can be positive or negative, but it's saying that basically I'm, I'm orienting myself relative to that group and whatever I'm saying about them. Interesting. That's a really... Key example it's of true because you'd never say, I, I don't want to say, say any group, but the X people, because it, it, it sounds exactly that way. That's, that's a languaging thing I'd never really thought of. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's very othering. And, and people, a lot of minority groups. Very othering? Is that what you said? It's very othering. Yes, it's very othering. Ooh, a lot I'm, of minority so groups tell me say what that othering they're often means. described in that way. Othering means that you're basically expressing out-group membership to whatever you're talking about. Uh -huh. So that means you're saying I'm not a member of this group and I'm showing it through the framing of my language that I'm not. And, and articles are a big way we do that. And, and when we're we do that, we're generally pronouns. being somewhat per, uh, pejorative. Um, not or, always, but, but often that can be the case. It yes. could also, I mean, we often say things like, you know, the Jews were really killed by the millions during the Holocaust. So, 
again, that doesn't necessarily, it's not pejorative. That might be a statement of fact, but what it does is it sets out the Jews as something separate from the readers. I see. And if I say, uh, uh, 3 million Jews were killed, um, that doesn't separate me from them. And that statement doesn't necessarily let you know whether or not I am Jewish. Absolutely. Ah, Absolutely. So that's an example of framing. Another example of framing is uh, co-allocation is some, uh, what we call it for the fancy word in linguistics, which simply means the words that come um, and often describe the noun that's the one you're referring to. And this is one of the problems we've talked about with chat GPT and other types of training data trained um, sort of um, neural models, neural networks. They tend to look at these frames and use them to predict how to behave in conversations with everyday people. So if I constantly see things like doctor framed with male pronouns or framed with more masculine descriptors, that will be the more common perception of that, that noun. And we find this in just everyday conversation, which is why chat GPT also has that framing because for example, earrings, the word earring will more often co-occur with female reference Female names, female pronouns, female descriptors. The name, do- the word doctor will more often occur with masculine ones if we look statistically. So when you use it as training data, then you're getting that same bias there. It's interesting. When I was a young man in my very early 30s, I worked with this extraordinary executive. Her first name was Diana. I don't know if she want me to talk about her broadly, but and uh, she had come to the startup uh, I was at from IBM. She was a very senior executive, very seasoned person incredible woman. And what she did in almost all circumstances like that was she used she, whatever it was. She'll be giving it, she'd be giving an example in a speech and she'll say, well, I talked to a CEO the other day and what she said was, and I thought, you know what? That's great. And ever since then I've done it. And even to this day where you think it would be much less remarkable you know, if I if I tweet out, um, uh, she who designs the category wins, it catches people's attention. And so that's a that's an interesting thing. So I wanted to ask you, let's go to chat GPT. You want to do something controversial with me? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so recently I got into a, uh, let's just call it a debate uh, on LinkedIn with um, some folks that I thought were practicing toxic femininity. And I called them out on it. And um, when you call someone out on something like that, who is proclaiming masculine or toxic masculinity, and you say, well, you're combating what you call toxic masculinity with toxic femininity, and you're literally becoming the machine that you rage against. That's what I said. Well, holy shit, Valerie, they went apeshit. So uh, I thought, boy, you really don't like it when your hypocrisy is exposed now, do you? So I, I thought, now what does ChatGPT say about this? Sure enough, when I asked ChatGPT what's toxic masculinity, I forget the exact phrasing, so I'm not going to get it right, but they said it was something like a useful framework for understanding da-da-da-da-da, and it was beneficial for both men and women to understand the patriarchy and the this and that, and went off on it in what I would describe as a neutral to positive um, uh, expression about what toxic masculinity was. Then I said, what's toxic femininity? And then it told me how triggering that was and how upsetting that was and, and so forth and so on. And then I had a conversation with ChatGPT about, what, well, are you expressing bias? Because if there can be toxic masculinity, can't there be toxic femininity? And yet everything you present to me presents one in a positive light and one in a negative light. And I did this with it for several minutes and it took a very long time for it to say something that I thought was um, unbiased about both phrases. So what's your insight on things like that? Well, I don't know why we expect ChatGPT to have intentional behavior. It is, it's not, it's a machine and it's not intentional and it's only spitting back what we feed it. The only difference with ChatGPT versus other forms of spitting things back is it's trained on 
like massive, massive, massive quantities of data, which has never really happened before. And it's trained to be more interactive than say a Google search, but it's basically a Google search that's putting it together for you. And I think because it does it in words that we understand and a framing that often seems human, we all of a sudden start thinking it knows something. And I've had those same conversations with it where it, you know, I ask it a question, it comes back something that I'm a little bit like, hmm. And I, you know, prompt it a little more until finally I get it to tell me what I want. But that's exactly it. You're getting it to tell you what you want by feeding it the prompts to make it look in the way you're looking at stuff. So it's just a parroting. You know, I'm not a big believer in chat GPT having this sort of big intentional ability to tell us things about ourselves that we don't already know. No, no, I didn't think that. I think that's sort of what you're getting back is, is that whatever it's been trained on with toxic femininity has been different than what it was trained on with toxic masculinity, because probably that's a much more more recent and more biased group that is talking about that. And so you're not going to get a perspective that is unbiased at all because it's a very limited set of training data, I would bet, that it has for that term. It sort of said that too. So let's take it out of chat GPT and technology. Why would it be that somebody, or in this case, a group of people who were champions of women's rights and and we're clearly standing against toxic masculinity would hear the phrase toxic femininity and count it as an insult not accept it as a possibility et cetera, et cetera. And so why is it a, a framing of it in one gender versus a framing of it in another causes at least right now um uh, a pretty different reaction. Now did you say this was over Twitter? LinkedIn. So in LinkedIn, LinkedIn, people are more a little bit more civil. Although uh, uh, one of uh, one of the guys ca- said, "Now I had exposed myself as a something something incel who yada yada." So he got I I kept it on the facts, and they got very uh, personally insulting uh, when I used the phrase toxic femininity. Well, I think, you know, I, I think it's hard to judge basically what different groups are thinking, but I think the big issue is social media. I'm not a big fan of social media because I think it's a really unpleasant place. I think people, when you remove the humanness of people and make them just words, people, it's like driving a car. What some people will do in a car to other drivers is so vastly different than what they would do to a person on the street if they went in person one-to-one. And Somehow we become uncivil on social media. And I think this idea that language is becoming less civil overall, we have, I've heard a lot of people saying we're less polite and we're not civil. I don't know that that's really true in day-to-day interactions, but it's definitely true in the ways that we get a lot of our information, which is through social media and um, computer-mediated communication of some sorts. And that's where the humanness of our interactions has been replaced by the anger of our interactions. And I, I really think what happens is we know nothing about the people we're talking to. And there are people with such different values and belief system and language belongs to all of us. And meaning is a communally determined thing. But what that meaning will be for whatever term you're talking about will be determined by the groups that are talking. And so, you know, woke, for example, is a perfect example of a word that has very different meanings for different groups that use it. Um, and we can fight over what the meaning is, but the reality is there is no one meaning. There's the meaning, however, we're using that word. That's how words get their meaning is by this community consensus over time about what that word means. And as we shift towards getting more pejorative or negative associations with the word, the meaning of that word actually slowly shifts in time to the point where often the people that had the positive association with it actually stop using it because it's become so overwhelmingly um, negative. But I think with, you know, the example you're giving of toxic femininity, I don't know the group you were talking to, but clearly whatever the people that were responding to came with a different framing for that word than you did. And because it was over uh, social media, I think it's impossible to hypothesize about what they were thinking and why they disagreed with your view. And, you know, I think it's hard to get into the specific exact kind of situation, but the bottom line is words don't have static meaning. Words have fluid meanings and it's through use that they become meaningful. So now let's go to one of my favorite topics, swearing. Let's go, let's get after all of them. So I spoke at a conference. Fuck yes. That's all I can say to that. <laughs> Thank you, Valerie. <laughs> so I spoke at a conference a few months back and uh, I swore and there was a executive there who was the senior vice president of DEI for a, one of the major tech companies. 
and she expressed uh, dislike with my swearing. And I'm somebody who swears to emphasize things. I don't swear at people, right? So I, I, I would distinguish between the two of them. So I, the debate I ended up having with her in front of a very large group of people was I said, well, you're the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes? Yes. Listen, listen to the words. Okay. Uh, I swear as part of my self-expression, could I work at your company? The answer is no. I said, okay, why? She said, because some people find it offensive. And I said, okay. So the harbinger of what works in your culture and doesn't work in the culture is what somebody finds offensive. So you're wearing a pink sweater, which she was. I said, if I find that offensive, do you not, not get to wear that sweater at work anymore? And she refused to answer the question. And then I said to her, well, you preach diversity, equity, and inclusion, but you don't practice language inclusion. And so tell me about swearing. Well, swearing is a fascinating topic. I'm not a swearing expert. There are people that study it for, uh, you know, their living for their research. But swearing is interesting because it is a release of emotion. We find a lot of brain processing that's a little different when you swear than when you don't. And it seems to be a release for a lot of people. But I think what you're talking about is this interesting idea of the common man standard or the common person standard. So a pink sweater probably doesn't offend a number of people, but swearing does offend quite a number of people. And therefore, the argument I think would be made in that context is that they're using the common person standard, uh, which would probably be, be something that could be upheld in a legal situation because that's a little different than than just something that generally doesn't incite people. Now, I'm okay, not, so can I push you on that? Yes, and this yeah. is where I pushed her and the room exploded. She essentially said the same thing, although nowhere near as eloquently as you just did. And I said, okay, so help me understand this. If I worked at your company and I showed up there tomorrow and I was in a dress and I had a wig on and I'd shaved my goatee and I put makeup on and I said, I was coming out as a trans woman and from now on, call me Susan. I'm, I'm assuming at your company that I would be supported and celebrated for fully expressing myself. And I would be encouraged to do so. And anybody who stopped me or threatened me or in any way didn't allow me to express my authentic self uh, would be called into HR. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Well, saying fucking shit as an expression of myself is how I talk. And so why is it I could change my gender and be accepted, which for the record, I think is a very good thing. But I can't express myself using the language that I want to use because there are many people in this country who find trans people offensive. I am not one of them. You're talking to a guy who grew up going to the Rocker, Rocky Horror Picture Show singing <laughs> with Frankenfurter. So not an issue for me. But as you well know, there are many places in our country where being uh, gay or being some other uh, group of any kind is considered offensive. And yet those people are part of the DEI uh, world and somebody who says fucking shit at the end of a sentence for uh, for emphasis on the right syllables uh, can be fired because of this, quote unquote, common person test. Well, I'm not sure they could be fired, but I think they could, you know, the, the company might say we don't appreciate that kind of language. I think it's a matter of legal protections, right? Um Gender is a legal protected category, but swearers are not. So I think your fight should be with Well, uh, they sort of are. The First Amendment exists. Now, not all companies have to abide by the First Amendment, of course. Um, the government does, but nobody else does. But language is supposed to be protected in our country, at least philosophically. Well, I think what you're arguing is a political uh, debate, not really a language debate. So well, I just wonder, what, I guess my, my point yeah, is, I, why is it? Uh, some language gets said, uh, here's another one, uh, um, pro-abortion. Well, you don't hear pro-abortion very much anymore. It's now pro-choice. So there are all these things in language that were acceptable that are not acceptable. When I was a kid, my mother bought me a Negro G.I. Joe <laughs> made by Mattel. Right. Okay, well, Mattel doesn't sell that anymore because that's not acceptable. 
And so I guess my question is um, the language, the use of it and the acceptance of it does change over time. And so Absolutely. when somebody says, well, the, the, you, when you do this or you do that, the common person test, well, the common person test is changing all the time because, um, you know, I can call you dude. <laughs> You can call me dude anytime. Yes. Well, you know, I think this is a, re a really interesting debate about how words and language are defensible and not defensible in different social climates. And this is a good example of how language is constantly changing socially and culturally. So these different terms you're talking about, so Negro historically being an acceptable term at a certain point is no longer acceptable. Ethnonyms, which is what that is, right, often change because of the severe prejudice that get attached to those terms and often because of who was using them at the time. So um, Negro was not a label that African-Americans chose for themselves. It was the label they were given. And it was also at a time when there was a huge amount of prejudice against Negroes. And so that term became loaded with the prejudice and the pain and the, um, you know, death and, and, um, lynching that they, they experience. And therefore it's a normal thing to move against labels that have so much history encoded. As I said, language is history. And if we know the history, it often bothers us more. Right. Yes. And that's why those words bother us. And so we find it very, very common that, um, culturally, um, disadvantaged groups, their ethnonyms change over time because of naming practices yes. of this idea of trying to reclaim a less pejorative name. As those titles get associated with pejoration, they'd shift. So I think that's a little different than, than the example you're yeah. than swearing. But the funny thing about swearing is, you know, actually, and there's a great book, if you are interested in swearing, called Holy Shit, The History of Swearing. Um, and it's really fascinating. But one interesting thing about swearing is, you know, culturally, swearing wasn't really accepted generally in American culture until World War II, when soldiers experienced such loss and bereavement on the battlefield that swearing seems to have come and become more popular at that point to express the emotional depth of that experience. So if you think about swearing, we look at cognitive processing of, during swearing, there's a big release that seems to happen and parts of the brain that are emotionally triggered seem to yes. light up. And that's because it does seem to be this almost primordial kind of release for yes. us. And that was what happened in the, on the battlefields. And then they brought those words home and they became useful in their daily lives. And women started to pick them up, not nearly to the degree they do today, for that same reason. And that's why we like swearing. It is, it's very, it, it's, you know, the extravagance I talked about before. Because swearing is not something that's typical. Because it's still considered taboo to some degree. When we do it, it makes what we do, what we say, both more, have a more emotional resonance because it speaks to that emotional response. And it also makes it have more uh, atypicality in that context and stand out more to the people listening. So in essence, you're using swearing there as what a linguist would call an intensifier when you're using mm -hmm. it in business talk, yes. because it's sort of taken away. It's not an emotional response anymore. So it's not like you hit your you know thumb with a hammer and you're like, shit, that hurt, where it's kind of an emotional release. When you're saying, you know, that these marketing numbers are shit, you're really emphasizing, I'm using this word to make you understand how significant this is. Yes. Because if it weren't taboo, it would lose that stat right. privilege status. So in many ways, what you're playing against is the fact that you know it's still taboo. Otherwise, it would have you would have no power in saying it in those cases. Hmm, fascinating. Right? Because it, it is much yeah. of what we, Let, we use in culture it's is a differentiator. about what's taboo. Yeah. What's interesting also about swearing is excrement terms are fairly recent in being huh. things that are taboo uh, because prior and, and really the history of swearing, uh, swearing is about taking oaths of, against God a lot of times. So God's bones, things like that. Those were swearing words because they were taking the Lord's name in vain. And in you know the Middle English period, that would be the worst thing you could do. And that was what, what was really taboo in that culture. Yes. Um, and so those words are, that's why we get words like gosh and golly, right. because those are actually based on God 
uh, sort of taboo terms mm. that have been removed from talking about God so that they could be uttered without being a swear word. Fascinating. I grew up in French Canada and French Canadian swear words are all rooted in the Catholic Church for that exact reason. Yep. I now, on, on the, on, I just want to circle back because I want to be clear on the on the groups of people and the changing of the, 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 the words. I think it's great that we live at a time where if a group of people say, hey, listen, you've used this word, people have used this word, our, our, our group, our people, this is an offensive word to us, right? So, so um, in Canada, when I grew up, the people who lived in northern Canada, the natives, we called them Eskimos. I had no idea that was a pejorative word. Apparently it is. And at some point in my life, they came forward and said, please call us what we call ourselves, which is Inuit. So we call them Inuit today. We don't use the prior word. We recently had this happen here in California. I'm a big skier. I love Tahoe. And one of my favorite mountains to ski for years was called Squaw or Squaw Valley. Well, uh, a group of Native Americans came forward and said, this is an insulting word for us. They explained why and so forth and so on. And so the owners of that mountain renamed the mountain. And uh, a lot of people were upset about that. And I understand upset about the, I get all that, but the reality is I'm a, per, it's the same thing with pronouns or names for that matter. You know, for example, one of my best friends, his name is Phil, but everybody calls him Flip. So he introduces himself as Flip because that's what he prefers to be called. And so whether it's a pronoun, a nickname, a name, or a phrase that amongst a certain group is offensive that the rest of us for one reason or another adopted and that group w- waves their hand and says hey we really appreciate it if you didn't use that and you said this I-, I think that it's wonderful that we live at a time where the openness to that is is as broad as it currently seems to be absolutely actually uh i want just so you know if you are a skier we just i live near tahoe and we just got but where a do bunch you live no i'm i'm in reno oh wow I spent so we, many, I woke many up this a ill-begotten to, night in Reno. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, especially if you like to ski and gamble. We just got about a, a inch of snow down in Reno overnight, so I think it might be time for a skiing weekend before the end of the season. It's they got a bunch of snow up there. I'm actually hoping to get up there this weekend and, and stay for several days, maybe even a week. <laughs> yes, it's really good skiing right now. I think we, we this is our second day of snow. So just, you know, for the skier in you. So What's beautiful. interesting is there is a fascinating article, and I'm happy to send it to you on the name Squaw, because a lot of people get upset over that. But that's because, they again, words have histories. And when they're valuable to us and we recognize them, when we know those histories and we understand why things are – we don't want to use words like the N-word. I think that's universally understood why people do not want to use that word. But a lot of times what we don't understand because we're not from that group is we don't understand the history of how those words have been used. And squaw is a great example of a word that has been used for centuries in a very pejorative way. It, it was a word for prostitute. That's how it was used by white men um, against Native American women. So it's like calling you know your mountain white hooker, you know white woman hooker. That's exactly what that word meant to the people against whom that word had been used. So it's a, there's a fascinating article that traces the history of the word squaw from a linguistic standpoint and I'd looks love to read at it. its, its use. So I'll find it and send it to you because I think people understand more when they understand these are, this is centuries of calling out native American women as dirty prostitutes. That's really how it was used. And I can understand why no one would want to walk around and go skiing on dirty prostitute Hill. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, the flip side of it, I, I, you know, there's a lot of upset about a lot of these things in our country and um, the th- part that I don't understand is if you want to be called Valerie and you want to be referred to as she, then that's what I want to call you because I want to be a human being with you. I sure don't want to call you something that you don't want to be called or something that is pejorative or causes any kind of, a, why would I want to do that? It makes no sense to me. And so, um, you know, whether it's whatever, whatever group it is, whatever word it is, I think when it's a group and that group says, Hey, please call us this, not that. Um, I don't know why people get upset. I, I call you Valerie because my understanding is that's your name and that's what you like to be called. If you preferred Val or you preferred V or you preferred Lee or some other, I don't know what, then I would call you that. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Actually, my name's Susie. You've been calling me the wrong name this whole time. I'm oh, God. <laughs> Am I on the <laughs> wrong podcast? <laughs> and let me just say for the record, I don't like to be called Val. So good choice to call well, me see, Val. Well, see, that's right. And, and you know what? It's funny. Even with my name, people ask me often, what should I call you, Christopher or Chris? And I actually have zero preference. I don't care. Uh, for marketing consistency purposes, it's Christopher on ex- externally facing things. But that's really all that uh, that is. And so, um, you know, I'm sure some people just call you Val, right? They do. And yes, you don't like do. it. I don't. Sometimes I tell people I will, depending on our relationship. You know, if it's someone I'll never see again, it's not worth it right. because it's it then you risk sort of this weird alienation, you know, social discord. But generally, if it's someone that I will see again, I will say, hey, you know, I don't really go by Val. If you could call me Valerie, that'd be great. Yeah. And then sometimes, you know, there's a guy I met uh, not long ago and I was calling him Michael. And at one point he said, oh, just so you know, all my friends call me Mike. So I call him Mike. Now, I don't know that he'd be upset if I called him Michael, but he said that. So I call him Mike. Right. It signals intimacy, right? We have a relationship where I want you to call me what my friends call me. That's actually a really lovely thing. Yeah. You know, people get really hung up on ideological values and how they assign that to language. And I think that's really where the fight is. You know, there's a war, there's a war of language that's based on ideological values and beliefs that then dribbles down into our naming practices. But I'm with you. I think, you know, people get the right to call themselves what they want. And, you, you know, I don't want someone to call me the, th- the things that I find not favorable. And, um, for example, Nevadans hate it when people call the state name Nevada which a lot of people do. It's Nevada and Nevadans. I learned this when I moved here because I did say Nevada when I first arrived, I was corrected very quickly. And that's what Nevadans call themselves. And it, it may be that when you're not here, you can, you say Nevada and you don't know, but if you know that that's what the state prefers, you know, that that's what we call ourselves. Then if you choose not to do it, what you're doing is taking a stance against the people that want to have the right to self name and in some senses, asserting a ideological superiority over them. And that rubs people here the wrong way. So if you're a politician or you want to sell something in the state, you damn well better say the state name right or people here are not going to listen to you or buy from you or certainly not vote for you. So, so if, it's I, really, if I'm a politician funny. and I go to Nevada or Nevada, I'm going to have a if I'm in Nevada, I'm going to have a very different experience. And if I'm in Nevada, they might like me a little better. Absolutely. They'll definitely be more willing to vote for you. That's for sure. Well, luckily, I'm never running for a political office. So. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Me neither. All right, Valerie, this, you're amazing. Thank you so much for your incredible book. Uh, I really, it's playful. It's insightful. Um, I think it's a very important topic um, for fun. It's a very important topic for all the serious things we talked about. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Oh, well, I just think I teased that dude has a really long history. So I think I should just leave with with a little bit of that before we we head off so that people know when they call each other dude, what it really meant. And, And it's a great example of how language change has been driven for centuries by cultural and social values and beliefs, not necessarily anything inherent linguistic. So dude in the late 1800s was a word. It was actually from Yankee Doodle Dandy. It's a fusing of doodle and dandy put together, which was, of course, a song sung by the British soldiers to the ragtag Americans to put them down. Of course, when the wartide turned, the Americans sung it back because they were like, yeah, take that, right? So duty comes from... Yankee Doodle Dandy, and then it was shortened to Dude. But a dude was considered an effeminate dandy in the late 1800s. It was actually a grave insult. And if you called someone a dude, they often would challenge you to a duel or sue you for defamation. And it was, you know, someone that was sort of the joke of turn of the century gossip to be called a dude was not a good thing. It was someone who had ostentatious regard for their clothes and self-appearance, and they were very self-effective and self-absorbed. So it was a very negative pejorative term, and that was only used in that way at the time. But then eventually, around the early 1900s, that sense of having a really good dresser um, being associated with the dude came to be its more prominent meaning than this sort of effeminate dandy sense. And so anybody that had a really crisp uniform, so for example, a new recruit to the police academy that showed up with their white press, their new pressed outfit, they would be a dude. 
That's how we get the term dude ranch. Because it was all these overdressed city folks showing up in rural West, in the rural West, and they were called dudes, and they became dude ranches because these were places for these out of you know out of the the water overdressed folks to have fun for a week and then go back to their lives with their overdressed showy clothes. So those, that's how we get dude ranch. Why we started to you see it in drugging and, sub, and sort of surfer subcultures is because it actually got picked up in the 1930s by the zoot suits. Right. And they were referred to each other, mostly Mexican American pachuchos and African American zoot suiters who were suffering from extreme prejudice. In fact, many cities outlawed the zoot suit and, and said all sorts of, of demeaning things to those that were them. And they were viewed as subversive and counterculture. And, um, well, often because they're minorities that weren't well liked as but well. They're so, so cool. I know they're cool, <laughs> that, but there were the riots and rebellion. That's exactly why dude became cool because they were dudes. They were cool dudes. They were counterculture dudes. They were edgy and they were great dressers. And that's the counterculture vibe that then got picked up in druggy subculture and uh, surfer subculture. And that's when dudes became mainstream and cool. And that's why dudes are considered macho and male today, but not so much at the turn of the century. So a little tale of the dude. And then, and then of on course, that, I think the dude might be the greatest movie character of all time. Absolutely. I mean, that's the dude we all imagine, right? No one, the the big Lebowski is the dude. And I think that tells us how the dude abides. <laughs> Valerie, <laughs> I'm in love with you. Is that okay to say? <laughs> that's fine. That's You're fine. legendary. Thank you for ending on dude. And thank you for your knowledge of the dude. And uh, we will both abide and you're welcome back anytime. You're fantastic. Thank you again for your book. And thank you for a Absolutely. marvelous conversation. Later, dude. <laughs> Later, dude. <laughs> Bye. That was the legendary Professor Valerie Friedland. Her new book is the number one bestseller, like literally, dude, arguing for the good in bad English. We'd like to thank you. And we'd also like to thank Brooke Craven for making this interview possible. And also, don't forget Mighty Networks. If you're a marketer or creator who wants to build and monetize a native digital community, go to MightyNetworks.com today. And don't forget the Innocence Project. You too can become part of the Innocence Project's community of monthly supporters who give to free innocent people and transform the legal system. You can find out more at innocenceproject.org. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential results. All oddcasts contain nuts, all rights disturbed. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, bud tender, and category designer before doing anything about anything you hear here today. Everything is the way it is because somebody changed the way it was. Please be kind and rewind. Oh yeah, and vote. This episode was produced and edited by Jason DeFilippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J handle the technical execution and our website. Show notes by GM Simon. Web development by RJ and EX Bobus. Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record on Squadcast.fm in glorious Dolby ADHD. Dave Grohl was right. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Thanks, Candy Dandy. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together. Our deepest, deepest apologies go to Sam Bankman-Fried. Sorry, Sammy, we just ran out of time for you. Till next time, stay safe, stay legendary, and follow your different.